Shalom, shalom, holy chevra. Thank you all for being here. Those of you in the room and those of you at a distance, we're so thrilled to be learning with you today, wherever you are in the world, to learn about Sar Bale Chaim, to learn about um, the Jewish relationship to suffering, in particular, suffering with non-human animals, um, as it relates to Jewish law and as it relates to contemporary moral society. And we are here with... Um, really a master educator and activist, Rabbi Arya Bernstein, who is a fifth generation Chicago South Sider and veteran Torah educator, especially in social justice spheres. Arya is the national Jewish educator for Avodah, educational consultant for the Jewish Council on Urban Affairs, and a longtime educator for the Jewish Initiative for Animals, Jiffa, one of our partners. Arya is a senior editor of JewSchool.com, a member of the Tzedek Lab, and a firm believer that all justice movements must include a commitment to ending the horror of factory farming. Arya is not only um, uh, a wonderful educator to learn from uh, because of his textual mastery, but his also his creativity and playfulness with the text and his absolute commitment that these sources and ideas have placed moral demands upon us, which are sometimes comfortable and sometimes not so comfortable. So Arya Bernstein, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Rav Shmuley, and thank you, Emma. Thank you to, to Eddie and the whole Shemayim team. It's always a pleasure to be participating in a Shemayim event. Um, I've had the great joy to be at a couple of the Shemayim conferences and to consider myself a member and a comrade and a fellow traveler. Um, I also want to give uh, another special shout out to Jiffa, the Jewish Initiative for Animals, in whose context I really developed the teaching that we're going to walk through today, an important uh, partner, really a, a powerful Jewish voice um, for ending factory farming. <clears throat> um, I call, uh, I'm joining you today from the southwest coast of Lake Michigan, the rightful uh, territory of the Potawatomi, Ottawa and Ojibwe peoples, south side of Chicago. And I wanna acknowledge the stewardship of this land um, and all the stewards of all the lands on which we're joining. Um, from people who had much healthier and more balanced relationships with human and non-human um, living beings. Um, so let's jump into it. There is this concept in Jewish law, the Hebrew term for it is tsa'ar ba'alei chayim, which literally means pain of living beings. And it's a concept that in uh, you know, Jewish animal rights or animal welfare circles, there's often confusion about what its scope is, how it applies, what it doesn't apply, what it doesn't cover. So we're going to actually do a walk through some of the main biblical and rabbinic sources that um, are the basis of this uh, of this principle and get a sense of what its rabbinic character and scope is. What is the responsibility for human beings for Jewish people? <clears throat> to intervene to prevent pain to non-human animals um, and to intervene to stop uh, pain situations that cause pain to animals who are experiencing it. Um, this is the first of a three-part series that I'll be joining Shemayim for uh, next month. And Emma will follow up with uh, all the exact dates and times and everything. Uh, the next one will be about the very fact of, it's well known that Jewish law doesn't prohibit eating animals carte blanche, 
But what does it actually mean for city dwellers, people who don't interact with non-human animals in their lives to consume animals? Is that actually so simple that that's permitted? Um, what's the context? What is, what's the religious guidance in rabbinic texts for, um, for interacting with dead animals as food for those of us who are alienated from them in their life? And finally, uh, in January, there will be a session on the consumption of dairy in the context of industrial agriculture, and whether that's even permitted, and if so, how. Um, okay, enough of the promotions. Let's jump in. I'm going to do some screen sharing for those who are joining here and for those who are watching. <clears throat> I will make sure to walk through every text for those who are listening in the podcast version. Okay, I'm going to share my screen. Okay. The prohibition of tsar balei chayim, causing cruelty to animals, pain to animals. Where does it come from and what does it cover? The basis, the main basis of this Jewish legal halachic concept is from a verse in Exodus Shemot, chapter 23, verse 5. That's uh, Parshat Mishpatim. Um, in the civil laws that come, the bulk of civil laws that come right after revelation of Torah at Mount Sinai, um, the Ten Commandments are chapter 20, and then the next few chapters are a whole array of civil laws. In that context, the Torah tells us, if you see your enemy's donkey collapsed under its burden, would you refrain from helping it? Help, really help it. Now, I just want to pause. It's always important to think about what core texts might mean, to understand the significance of interpretive paths taken before we jump into seeing what those are. On its face, I think there are two more or less equally compelling potential interpretations <clears throat> of this verse. One verse focusing on the word your enemy, your hater, sona'acha. It's not just any donkey. It's specifically the one of someone belonging to your hater. That might draw us into a human social interpretation of this verse in the Torah. That the main per point here is to say, um, if you see a person who's got a balagan, who's got a terrible situation, a, a crisis, you know, their donkey collapsed under its burden, having trouble getting it back up don't be salty and vindictive and say well i'm not gonna help this person in that donkey because i don't like that person no the torah would say azov tazovimo help or you know really unload unload with him now emo in hebrew it's unclear whether emo means with it the donkey or with him this gendered male person who uh, is the, uh, the steward of the donkey. So one potential reading is that this isn't really about non-human animals. It's about human social relations. And you can't be a jerk and refuse to help a human being in need just because you have a quarrel with them. Another possible reading <clears throat> is that this is really focusing on the donkey. Azov to Azovi Mo means really help it, help unload it. Um, or even it might still mean help him, the person, but help him 
ease the burden of this donkey. The problem is that this donkey is suffering. You have a responsibility to alleviate the donkey's pain. Don't think that because you're mad at, maybe even legitimately mad at the human being who quote unquote owns the donkey, therefore you can let this donkey experience suffering. No, you have to intervene for animal welfare. You wouldn't necessarily have to intervene to help a person. Let's say your sonaha, your enemy had, you know, their cart, a wooden cart of their goods collapsed. You might not have to go and help them, according to this reading. You would be able to say, I hate that guy, or they hate me. I don't need to intervene. But if it's a donkey, you can't let your personal social beef get in the way of helping this innocent donkey who has collapsed under an excessively heavy load. Those are two, I think, more or less equally possible compelling readings of Exodus chapter 23. And what we'll see in the next coming minutes is that the rabbinic tradition very robustly chooses the second one, doesn't really even entertain the social reading, at least on this verse, might have other verses in the Torah that entertain the importance of getting over our personal vendettas or dislikes in order to help people. That might be a, um, something anchored elsewhere. But the anchor of this verse in the rabbinic imagination is going to be about animal welfare. So, for example, <clears throat> the Mishnah, the core of rabbinic Judaism, third century um, code, and much more than that. Um, in the tractate Masachet Bav Metziah, chapter 2, Mishnah 10, referring to the case of the verse that we just saw. The first anonymous voice of the Mishnah teaches, it's a commandment from the Torah to unload, but not to then reload. So in other words, what is the extent of the Torah, of the obligation the Torah puts on you? You really can't stand this person, but this donkey didn't do anything wrong. This donkey is an innocent, suffering, uh, sentient being. You have to go help the donkey. How much do you have to help? It's really a question about all sorts of areas of life. I'm a busy person. It has nothing to do with my bad will. I just, I got my kids with me. I'm, got, I'm on my way to something or I'm at work. I'm on the clock. My boss is going to get me in trouble. How much do I need to actually uh, go out of my way for somebody, for somebody else? So the first view says the donkey collapsed under the weight of these goods. You have to intervene to help remove all the goods from the back of the donkey. And then after that, it's, it's not on your, you can go on your way and the person who's the steward owner of the donkey will then reload hopefully in a, <clears throat> in a more successful way, more humane way. Rabbi Shimon goes further and says, no, you have to stick around until the load is reloaded on the donkey in a non-cumbersome, non-excessive way. I guess maybe Rabbi Shimon is worried, oh, wait a second. If this guy loaded the donkey inhumanely or excessively to start with, I don't know. Do we trust that they're going to do it so responsibly this time? Or maybe it's not about responsibility. Maybe the person's incompetent. So whatever. We can't let this donk put this donkey at risk. You have to stick around longer to help reload the donkey in an appropriate way that is appropriate to what the donkey can 
um, can sustain, which is different for different donkeys. So that's the basic law. And the Mishnah, in, as, it's, as it's characteristic for the Mishnah, doesn't tell us how to rule between two different viewpoints. The Talmud on that Mishnah picks up that case and says, well, there's actually an expanded version of this teaching. The Mishnah like, kept it brief, but there's actually an expanded version of this teaching that the sages taught. The first view says that you know, it's a commandment to unload the donkey or any other animal even for free. So, you know, you're like, I'm, I'd love to help. I know the Torah says, and I have compassion for the donkey, but I'm on the clock at work. Like, if I can only earn money doing my own work during sunlight hours, and it's going to cost me money to do this. So the sages say that regardless, it's a commandment, even if you're going to lose money for it, you're not getting paid compensation for your time to unload the donkey. You've got to do that even for free. But to stick around and reload they actually, this version of the text has a more robust obligation than the Mishnah's version did and say, you, if the person is willing to compensate you for your time, then you do have an obligation from the Torah to stick around. But the Torah has compassion on you financially and will let you go once you've alleviated the immediate pain if the person's not compensating you for your time. And Rabbi Shimon goes further and says, um, for both of those, it's a commandment to do it uh, for free. Rava, a much later Talmudic commentator, looks at this and says, wait a second, both of them require you to intervene in some case to unload, even without compensation, and maybe even to go further. Um, Rava says, from both of their statements, we can learn that relieving animal pain is a principle from the Torah. This is a biblical principle. In other words, the, the authoritative way to read Exodus chapter 23 is that the Torah is concerned about animal pain. That's a mitzvah. Now, that's going to be complicated because how do we define what is significant pain? You know, does that mean that any time, like, you can't put anything on a donkey, a donkey or an ox or anything else will be happy when the workday is over and can rest. I'm happy when I take off my backpack. It, um, how much pain counts as the pain that the Torah intervenes for? Does this mean you can't use animals for work? You can't walk an animal even for pleasure because there might be pebbles on the road. I mean, how far does this actually go? So there's a piquant example in Tractate Shabbat of the Talmud, where some earlier rabbis teach the following case. Um, and we get a sense of how, uh, of what kind of pain we're talking about, and also um, what the legal import is of saying that it's a biblical concern to, uh, um, it's, it's a biblical weight that we have to be concerned with animal pain. So Rav, who was the first generation in Babylonia after the closing of the Mishnah. So early, early 200s, early third century. So what if a, an animal falls into a water canal on Shabbat? Well, on Shabbat, it's prohibited to move animals because the Ten Commandments and the law of Shabbat says you're not allowed to work, neither you nor your 
children, nor your servants, nor your animals. Animals are a major way in which labor gets done, especially agriculturally. So in order to prevent that, you're really not supposed to like touch or move animals at all. There are some things you can do for their own good, like how you walk your dog to, so that it can relieve itself. Um, you milk cows if they're in distress, but you're not allowed to keep the milk. You're not allowed to milk them commercially. Um, but in general, you're not allowed to touch or move animals in Shabbat. They should roam freely. So if an animal falls into a water canal on Shabbat, Rav teaches, you should bring pillows and blankets and place them underneath the animal. If it climbs up, it climbs up. In other words, you can't pull the animal out when it might be in distress, but you can put stuff there that might create like a, like a ramp, sort of, so the animal can climb itself out. But there's another contradictory source that says that if an animal fell into a water canal on Shabbat, put food, put provisions in its place so that it doesn't die. You wait till Shabbat, you bring food there so that it can eat. It's going to be in discomfort. And then as soon as Shabbat's over, you can bring it up. And in the meantime, just food. So the, the anonymous editors of the Talmud are like, wait a second, that implies, you know, provisions, food you can bring, but you can't bring stuff, pillows, blankets for it to walk out. Well, no, you can resolve that, says the Talmud. Um, these aren't contradictory cases. The second case that only said provisions, that's where it's possible, where the animal will have relief with only provisions. You do as little of a Shabbat violation as possible in order to provide relief. The first case is a case where like, that wouldn't be sufficient. The animal is experiencing distress from the water. Um, and then the Talmud objects, wait a second, but if you're doing that, bringing pillows and blankets, you're using items for a different purpose than they were intended. That's actually a basic Shabbat violation. You can't on Shabbat go and like pick up a rock and because you think it's beautiful and then move it into your house on Shabbat and say, this is going to be a decorative piece or, or I'm going to use it as a bookmark. You have to make designations on Shabbat. Once Shabbat comes, the world is as it is tools have the uses that were that they've had ahead of time you can't turn a blanket into a ramp on shabbat so the talmud explains like this well that's true but that prohibition of like changing the use of something is only a rabbinic level prohibition preventing the pain of animals is of torah authority and so a torah com commandment comes and bumps off a rabbinic commandment what this means is that for the Babylonian Talmud, <clears throat> saying that Tsar uh, Ba'alei Chaim is of biblical weight has teeth to it legally. That means that in order to alleviate or erase suffering pain of an animal, you can violate rabbinic commandments. If there's something that is a rabbinic prohibition for you to do, and you need to violate it in order to alleviate pain to the animals, you not only may, but you must violate that rabbinic level prohibition in order to alleviate pain to the animals. If it was a biblical level prohibition, then you have two equally weighted forces against each other, and you don't necessarily you don't necessarily have that leeway. But that's pretty significant. A lot of things that are well that are familiar um, Jewish prohibitions in halacha and Jewish law are on the level of rabbinic law, and this is saying. Um, if there's a probe, e even if there's a, something prohibited, but if it's prohibited under rabbinic authority, you violate that in order to alleviate pain 
to a non-human animal. Now, the problem is there are lots of other rabbinic texts that talk about animals and refer to things that would be painful for the animals, and yet the Talmud doesn't mention Sar Balechaim as an objection in places where, with a robust understanding of this legal principle, we might expect much more um, engagement with that. Um, there are, there's even a case where, you know, if a king has died and it's going through all sorts of different grieving practices, self-flagellation, other things that people might engage with in when somebody who's a major leader for them has died, um, what's allowed and what's not allowed because it might be considered a foreign practice. And one of the things that the Talmud allows in this other passage is even like hamstringing certain animals, like certain animal gashing, not only self-flagellation, but animal injury. And the Gemara, the Talmud doesn't object in that case, but wait a second, what about Sar Balechayim? And several other cases like that too. Um, in addition to the basic kind of common sense kind of thing that, I don't know, like there's all sorts of casual references to riding animals and having them do work. What's the line? So I'm distilling several hundred years of post-Talmudic medieval um, commentary and trying to make sense of all these different passages. But this passage of Rav Moshe Iserlis, known as the Ramah, who is the Ashkenazi glosses half of the epic 16th century legal code called the Shulchan Aruch, um, he distills these earlier works that had the kind of medieval rolling back of the scope of Tzarbalei Chaim. And the way the Ramah summarizes it is to say, for anything that is needed for health or other purposes, shar dvarim, there's no concern for animal pain. So if, you know, rifuah, health healing is the only thing he mentions in particular, there's a lot of, of uh, pre-modern and contemporary um, medicinal um, um, treatments that come not just from herbs, but also from non-human animals if it's necessary for that purpose, no concern for animal pain. Therefore, he gives an example. It is permissible to pluck feathers from live geese. Someone might do like around the place of slaughter in order to, be, to see the area better and be less likely to make an error in the slaughter. It's permissible to pluck feathers from live geese. That's, that doesn't feel good for the goose. It's gonna hurt. That level of pain is allowed. There's no concern for animal pain because there's going to be a purpose to it. Nevertheless, many people refrain because that's cruelty. So the Ramah simultaneously reflects, or the medieval commentators in general, as digested by the Ramah here, shrink the legal scope of the prohibitions involved with Tzar Balei Chaim, but keep a kind of moral voice about really watch it though. There are things that you can argue are legally okay, but leaves room for a social condemnation of saying like, it is still kind of cruel maybe. And that's a very strange place 
or a confusing place to leave a legal, um, a legal category and leaves a lot of room for successive generations to come back in. Now you can already imagine how people who are in the pocket of big agra or factory farming or the slaughterhouses or work for the kosher certification certification agencies etc people who have vested interest in their flourishing will have a very broad reading of the beginning of the words of the ramah here and say anything is needed for health or other purposes there's no concern for animal pain kosher meat is cheaper and the kosher consumer can eat meat daily, which they might enjoy. That's a purpose. They enjoy it and they can eat it regularly at affordable cost. And a lot of workers, a lot of rabbis can have jobs then working in the slaughterhouses and in the certification agencies. Those are purposes. So there's no concern for animal pain. And you can expand industry as much as possible because there's profit involved. That's, that's a purpose. So I want to jump to, you know, we're, we're digesting, we're getting like a short view, but I want to look at two late 20th, early and early 21st century um, post scheme legal authorities. Neither one of them is dealing with is addressing factory farming and slaughterhouses as a whole category. But they deal with specific cases that I think can be instructive for how we think about the contemporary horrors of slaughterhouses and um, slaughter and factory farm animals. We're going to start with actually the slightly later one um, in Israeli uh, Haredi ultra Orthodox posseh, very important posseh called uh, named Shmuel Vozner, who just died seven years ago. He was in Bnei Brak, leading Ashkenazi authority of his time. And uh, he had a, a collection of legal opinions called Shevet Alevi, Shevet Alevi. Um, and he wrote the following. Let's actually slow down and read this inside. Here's language. So he writes to Rabbi David Tao, who asked a question. I received your dear correspondence and the letters asked me about the tearing done today to old chickens, wherein they give them nothing to eat for 10 days except for water to drink so that they become very weak and many die from this. And many others persevere as they can live from their fat. Through this, their feathers fall out and they grow new feathers, after which they're treated until they begin laying eggs again. The profit for those who do this is that they do not need to wait five months with small eggs before they start to lay. Therefore, it's preferable for them, they have benefit, <clears throat> to do this practice to the old ones, to sort of to torture the chickens in a way, in a way that will screw the chicken's uh, clock up in a way that it'll more quickly start laying full-fledged eggs and they'll have eggs that they can sell. Is it prefer it's preferable for them to do this practice and gain time and money? And your soul is in your question, Ravosner says, whether this isn't a violation of the prohibition of causing pain to animals to starve animals for 10 days just for monetary profit. Rav Taub is like, I know the Ramah says all any purpose, it's okay, but this just seems appalling. What's, what's the deal? Is this okay? So Ravosner has a long part that I've excerpted, cut out, just where he goes through lots of different Talmudic uh, cases. 
and um, and he goes through cases that show that there's actually even significant pain to animals that's permitted in certain tomoda cases. And all of this is with great pain. And even it is permitted for any need, as we have seen. But extreme cruelty, such as our topic, starving animals for a long time and preventing them from access to food, already notice that he's done an interesting legal move of breaking down pain that the only... It's, how much pain is not the only axis. There's also a matter of what's the cruelty involved. Sometimes we're in a world that has pain sometimes, but what's the context in which the pain is, uh, is given? For those who are Talmudists in the eighth chapter of Babakama, we see in an interpersonal con context that the level of pain or embarrassment that a person causes to another is very much interwoven with the social status and with the context of which the pain or the embarrassment are, are caused. So similarly, he's doing something similar to with regard to animals here and saying extreme cruelty, such as our topic, uh, starving animals and preventing them from food. I found in the book Otsarapos game that he quotes from another book, Todot Yaakov, there was much hollering those butchers who starve the animals for a day or two, saying that the starvation made the meat more dense, are violating the prohibition of causing pain to animals. Told that Yaakov said so. And that's exactly our case, says Ravosner. And our case is even more extreme cruelty, starving them for 10 days. And even if we say that the full-fledged biblical authority prohibition against causing pain to animals can't be claimed here, though the told that Yaakov said that it is claimed here, even if you don't go all the way to say it's a biblical prohibition since at the end of the day, it is for monetary profit. Nevertheless, they're acting like arrogant Gentiles. And as the Rambam wrote in Hilchot Avadim in chapter five, quote, the seed of Abraham, whom God showered with the goodness of Torah, are merciful to all and cruelty and insolence are found only in idolaters. Read carefully what he saw. And all the more so, since from the language of another book, Sefer Hasidim, it seems that there is a full-fledged prohibition of causing pain to animals in this sort of case. Therefore, I agree with his honor, the, the questioner, they should refrain from doing this. Now, the Shevet Alevi hedges a little bit. It's saying, like, I know some people aren't going to be convinced. So he starts and ends by saying that there are heavyweight legal opinions, the Toldot Yaakov and the Sefer Hasidim, that in his reading say that, yeah, this is a biblical prohibition to do that starving animals, torturing them in this way for the sake of some increased profit, that's a biblical prohibition. He's aware that it's not an airtight case and that there are other books with more, more narrow reading of Tzar Chaim. But even to cover them, he says, even for those who were going to balk and say it's a full-fledged biblical prohibition to cause pain to animals this way, you're a disgusting person who's acting like an idolater we may not be able to like formally say that it's illegal, though I think that it is, but, but even according to the more uh, lenient, more capitalist, more business-friendly views, in my opinion, you'd have to say that a person who does this torturing of animals is uh, like the worst kind of idolater, arrogant Gentiles, etc. That's the shave of a lady. Think about with the way he described the particular case that was brought to him and think about things that you've seen and learned about a whole range of things that happen um, in factory farms and slaughterhouses, as well as in animal 
animal testing, uh, laboratories, etc. Try to think about what would apply. Now we come to a little bit earlier, the United States. Rav Moshe Feinstein um, died in 1986, New York City, Russian born, was, according to I think most people at the time, was the leading diaspora authority, certainly the leading Ashkenazi authority um, of his time. And his, uh, his response has been extremely influential. So he's asked about veal um, by his son-in-law, Mordechai Tendler. So in the novel matter of the calves, not only is each calf raised alone in its own very narrow place, such that they don't have the space even to walk a few steps, they're not fed any animal food that's appropriate for calves, and they never taste mother's milk, but they raise them in very fatty liquids from which animals don't benefit. It just fattens them up. It's not actually nourishing, which is the opposite of what the Talmud and Tractate Bechorot says. It's certainly better to feed a sick animal while it's better, blah, 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 blah. They're made sick from this, and they need various medicines. The food, that the so-called food they're serving them causes them to need medicine. It's the opposite of food and nourishment. And according to what the expert slaughterers say, only 15% of them are kosher. According to the lenient slaughterers, 44, 45% are kosher. But whatever, all of them would agree that the majority of them through this cruelty become trefot, they, which means that they uh, receive mortal wounds or illnesses, abscesses, etc., from which they would not survive a year. An animal that has a mortal wound from which it wouldn't survive a year is called a trefa, is forbidden to eat. So you're doing, the, the, uh, the, the capitalists are torturing these calves, rendering the majority of them, even in the most lenient assessment, forbidden for consumption for Jews, so whatever, sell those to Gentiles, so that you have this very fatty meat that some Jews, a bunch of Gentiles will eat veal. And he's like, that's completely ridiculous because the Talmud throughout operates on a presumption that most animals are kosher, that trefot are unusual. It's unusual for an animal with like a lung disease. You have to check after you slaughter it to make sure, but that's it ends up being unusual. And here we see like, according to the pious slaughterers, like 85% are trefot, maybe only 55% are trefot. But that's wild. That means you're doing something way beyond what the Talmud imagined. Therefore, it would be appropriate to forbid from doing this and pious people should not eat calves like these, even if their internal organs have been checked. And for those who do this, there's certainly a prohibition of causing pain to animals, tsar ba'alei chayim. Even though tsar ba'alei is permissible for human need, that's where this need like to slaughter them for food, to work them, to plow, to haul loads and the like. But not just to cause them pain, for this is forbidden even if one would profit from it. For example, if a non-Jew wants to kill or maim an animal at which she's angry, it's certainly forbidden even to pay for this evil deed. You can't use an animal as a subject in order to, uh, uh, to work out your rage, which you know we've seen happens in you know hidden PETA videos or whatever things happening in uh, in slaughterhouses. The profit that is permitted is for food, even for others and even for Gentiles. But to kill or maim for the will of some statist is forbidden, even if one does it to make a profit. Since one is paying someone for the cruelty one says to do. Since what accrues to one who profits from killing is maiming animals is forbidden, 
even if it's profit for human needs, unless they're specifically for a thing that's the way of humans to do. He's looking at veal production and saying, this is not how human beings have been eating forever. This is a new profit motive nonsense. You can't do that. Something that is like the advent of this country, this economy, this is not the way it's done. There have been, we live in a world in which pain sometimes happens. Human beings are allowed to use animals with regulations and restrictions, not on Shabbat, not excessively, but this is out of whack. However, it's forbidden to cause pain to an animal by feeding it things from which it doesn't benefit. Think of most of the food, think of feeding corn to cows that messes up their stomachs um, and also causes methane gas that has a terrible impact on the ozone layer. And that hurt it and from which they'll get sick and suffer pains from the illness. For this benefit of being able to cheat people, it is forbidden to do so from a biblical prohibition of Tsar Balichayim. And for this, it is not permitted for people to cause pain to animals. I'm going to stop the screen share there. I'm going to give a little summary and then we'll open it up if there are questions, um, whether here from people in the room or from people uh, sending questions from the live stream. Um, and to say that, um, that in this text from Rav Moshe Feinstein, his, his writing wasn't always the smoothest. You see that like he, his writing could have benefited from a little bit of editing or taking, you know, first year college logic and rhetoric, whatever. He goes around in circles a little bit. You feel his rage there. He also knows that legally it's hard to pinpoint a closure to the, the prohibition of Tzar Bale Chaim because it's, you know, it, there is... There is human gain here, but you feel like smoke coming out of his head where he's like that when, when the, when the Rishonim, when the medieval commentators talked about human benefit, they weren't talking about wicked people who are squeezing profit out of anything. So those of us in Shemaim who are vegans and those of us who are vegans more robustly not just because there are no permitted animals to eat in the context of, of, uh, of factory farming, but who are more robustly thinking that humans can't take animals for food. We have to acknowledge that that is a midat chasidut in rabbinic terms. It's, a, it's a, uh, a trait of piety that Jewish law doesn't require. Jewish law allows slaughtering animals for food. It allows working animals, it allows putting burdens on animals. When the Torah prohibits having two different sized animals or different species of animals carry a load together, that's because that would be an undue excessive pain. But you are allowed to hitch a wagon to an ox in a way that's not excessively uh, um, heavy or burdensome and have it do with your work for you, not on Shabbat and not in a way that causes undue pain. Those things are allowed. But Rav Moshe Feinstein is noticing that something is out of whack. Something in the creation of the veal industry has gone terribly wrong. To put it in the language of a 19th century posseik, an authority named Rav Yehuda Ashad, Asad, uh, a Hungarian 19th century uh, authority who wrote a, an important legal work called the Yehuda Ya'aleh, in a different context, 
not a food context. He says that Sar Balei Chaim is, is waived for livelihood, but not for profit. You can't say, well, I make more money and I like having more money. So I'm going to torture the animal because I can make more money for it. No, you can't do that. Um, you can, uh, you are allowed to slaughter animals for food. That is nourishment that feeds people or to sell it as your livelihood. People are allowed to earn a living and have food and housing security, but you're not allowed to torture animals. And you see, you hear this in Moshe Feinstein, the combination of these two factors of the excessive pain and torture well beyond what we've seen in Talmudic texts, the cruelty of it, that it's not something that is an unfortunate after effect, but it is, it's a well thought out, painful mechanism, and the non-necessity. He's calling BS on this being in the scope of the needs that the Ramah, that the medieval commentators included. This isn't a need. This is just gluttony. This is excessive profit. Um, and you're not entitled to that. You're not entitled to torture and cause pain to God's beings for that purpose. So I will pause there and see if there are questions and reactions we can open up into a conversation. I can also uh, you know, refer to some other love it, passages. Love it. I would love to jump in with the first question here. Um, and Emma, you can let us know if others are coming in from the live stream, um, either live stream. Um, so, I, you know, um, studies on, on psychopaths show that, like, not the, interesting enough, they actually are um, more sensitive to their own pain than the common person, which is surprising, but have not only are desensitized or don't have empathy towards others' pain, but actually the part of the brain that is activated when someone else suffers is joy. Um, there's a pleasure to seeing another suffer. You would think somebody running a factory farm was like a psychopath because how could you possibly like run this operation? But not everyone is a psychopath who runs that. So like, how do you psychologically explain the phenomenon of like a system of this level of cruelty and how people have got to a psychological place that they're able to operate infrastructures like this? Like there's a lot, we are all complicit in systems of oppression, but that are hidden. But like something like that, where the suffering is so up in your face, like how do you think that happens? Yeah. So from a non-expert perspective, I'm just sharing, thinking as a person who cares about this stuff, who's been in or adjacent to the movement for a long time. I'll I'll share a few observations and anecdotes. One is that um, jobs that are involved in torturing animals, you know, factory farm, slaughterhouse etc have some of the highest turnover of any um uh, throughout the workforce and high suicide and depression rates so i think the first response is that in terms of direct people who directly are put in the position of having to do this in order to get their meager paycheck and go home um when people are desperate to make a living they'll do a lot of things um, to themselves and to others and even, even despite that, there's a lot, it, there's a, a real impact. Um, another thing is looking at the, the degree of desperation. Um, it's very hard to get 
precise data because things are so hidden. But the best estimations that have been made, slaughterhouses and factory farms have some of the highest um, incidences of hiring of undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. Also, Southern California farm workers, which is also backbreaking, also you know, ter uh, very painful work. But these slaughterhouse jobs and factory farm jobs, um, tremendous injury to human beings and require human beings to be torturing animals. And despite the fact that you have people who are the most desperate often doing the jobs, they still are very likely to quit, leave, not show up, and God forbid, um, die of suicide and suffer from depression. So I think the first answer is that um, I don't think we have to go so far to explain how people can do it. The answer is not so easily. It's really, I think it's a really uh, terrible thing that, that makes a big impact on people. Um, the second thing I would say is that, you know, the gap, like those who have the greatest profit motive from it, usually in my understanding, successfully put some of those barriers between them and the torture and the suffering. You know, the, the CEO of, of Purdue or of whatever, you know, animal slaughter operation is not the one there. I'm, I'm hesitant even to name just for, uh, from a trigger perspective, like naming the horrors. I, I, I trust the people who are watching this. If you don't know, watch um, Food Inc. or Eating Animals or not any number of the documentaries that have been made. The, the main profiteers are not the ones who are inside. Maybe some of them are sociopaths. And if you look at the, uh, um, the beginning of the COVID uh, pandemic, some of the emails that were uncovered from middle and top managers at some of these slaughterhouses who you know, had a pool of how many of their undocumented workers would die of COVID when they were forcing them to work. That's not about the animals, it's about human beings. Um, so some people might think that's an even more so reflection on their cruelty. People who are more radical animal rights wouldn't say that there's an all the more so reasoning, but it's the same. Maybe they're sociopaths, or maybe I think that is like, it's actually of a type, like the rest, all of capitalism um, creates an alienation from other sentient beings for the sake of, of profit. I mean, really the origin of capitalism is basically in the transatlantic slave trade. So, you know, <laughs> If you're wondering how do people for the sake of profit manage to do this much cruelty right. on non-human beings, well, I mean, look at, we got a, an even bigger, mm -hmm. maybe even, you know, I, I think even bigger price. How, how do they do that against, you know, millions and millions of, of human beings? Um, it seems like a lot of that happens through what's often called dehumanization Mm -hmm. But I think it's it's really like de like ideologies of devaluing of the lives of sentient beings. So there are entire ideologies that are constructed to interrupt one's um, capacity for empathy. And for this, you know, I'm not you're Rashmuli, you're a much much more learned in philosophy than I am, an area that you've studied, but 
I mean, if you look at, you know, Hannah Arendt's writing and the banality of evil and other philosophical works on suffering, like there were Nazi guards who were by all indications really nice, good parents and good community people and kind to people if they were people who were considered in their sphere of care. And how is it that people are so easily able to observe living sentient beings and cut them out of their spheres of care? It's especially remarkable with regards to non-human animals among people who, it's something I think about all the time, people who um, are pet caregivers and have their dogs and cats and pose for pictures and French kiss their dogs and like all this like very cuddly loving stuff and like go, won't go on vacation because they have to make sure that their dog is cared for. And they just very casually, they don't just like eat animals, but they like very, very casual or even flip about talking about the lives of the animals that they eat. So that it, all these are versions of the same question. I don't think that answers it. But I think at the heart of it is that um, people ultimately can't practice cruelty to sentient beings without some combination of barriers that allow them denial and or ideological barriers to cut off these people from their spheres of concern. Awesome, love it. Um, I, I have more questions, but Emma, I wanna pause to see if anyone else is uh, anywhere asking. Not yet. Great, great. So um, Ravarie, I wonder how do we, um, would, you, would you situate, oh, Eliezer's got a question. Let me pause there for him or for them. Okay. Hi, Ravarie, thank you so much for uh, for the lesson. I'm, I've been doing thinking about this sort of not in the animal realm, but just in Baltashrit in general, about how to, for people who really take halacha seriously, how do you get over the limitations that evolved over time to some of them, some of some things which feel like, oh, it's a progressive value in the Torah, but then we have, oh, but for humans, uh, for human benefit, it's okay, right? I, I heard you talking about this here, and I've seen it by Baltashrit also. And to me, it seems like there needs to be sort of a philosophical res uh, revolution, not a uh, halachic revolution. But uh, I wonder if you have sort of uh, comments on how to do that. I know that uh, like you gave a bunch of sources here, which really show high level rabbis with extreme disgust towards this. That doesn't exist really by Baltashkit that I've seen. Um, but I wonder if you have any like thoughts on how to spark that philosophical rev uh, revolution as opposed to the halakhic revolution, which seems like it might be slow in coming. Yeah. And I'm not sure which one is more far-fetched or which one is more, which one is faster or slower in coming. I think that um, I have an interest because so many people who have profit motive in, um, in animal torture, include people in the rabbinic class who have profit motive because all right let's just talk real talk for a couple of minutes um you know the kashrus agencies are profitable that doesn't mean that they're entirely corrupt they're not doing important work and i'm a kosher keeper and i value the certification and observation they provide but 
the OU, which I don't think is better or worse than any of the other cost-risk organizations, it's also a cash cow of the Orthodox Union because most kosher consumers are not Jewish. And so it's actually bringing in money into, um, into Orthodox Jewish programming from outside, uh, outside sources. There's a profit interest. When people have a profit interest, it's very hard for them there's a, there's a motivation to line up with certain authorities. So I, I have an interest in destabilizing um, statements of a legal closed book when the, the record doesn't actually show that. I think it's actually important for Torah, for the long-term, and also for this particular fight. Um, I think it's not either or. I think we can be having philosophical reframings and rethinkings while we do our judicial work at the same time. With Baltashri, um, I guess the line that I would be interested in from a legal perspective would be, um, when wanton destruction, environmental destruction is permitted for, uh, for human benefit, well, what have been places where there have been some limitations and restrictions on that? In fact, there's a famous dispute between like the Rambam and the Ravid, for example, on uh, tearing clothes and breaking items in a fit of rage, where like some people say that like, no, that's, that's okay because it's like, it's actually a way of assuaging your anger. And there are other people who are saying like, no, that's actually not a healthy way to process anger. That's precisely the wrong response. So I would be interested in adjacent areas like that to see where there are opportunities legally and where some people have actually made, taken those opportunities to make the moves that Moshe Feinstein, the the Levi, um, the Yehudi Yale, et cetera, are making and saying like, yeah, just because somebody uses the word, the phrase human need, doesn't mean that anything anybody calls a human need is actually a human need. We can, and that's where I think the, the philosophy, the philosophical moves you're looking for can take expression legally and say, no, this actually isn't a human need. Like having food and home security is a human need. Being able to birth children and have them grow up in a secure, well-nourished environment. That's a human need. Having livelihood, having some sense of purpose. Becoming very wealthy isn't a human need. There are, if you're able to do it in per legally permitted ways, maybe because it's a hate, you have like serious obligations of your redistribution after that, but the methods aren't passing through prohibitions because it's a hate. But if you're torturing sentient beings for the sake of having more profit, these great post gamers are saying like, I call BS on that, that's not a human need. And I think you might find uh, room for similar room in the Baltashkit realm. It wouldn't surprise me that we see less of it because sentient beings are sentient beings. There's a difference in empathy with regard to sentient beings and non-sentient beings. And like what, um, you know, when post-game talk about prohibitions of destruction, Baltashrit, they're doing that prior to the advent of planetary collapse. You know, if, if a pre-1970 
Posek talks about Baltashri, it's not the concerns of the environmental movement since the t- 70s talk about in terms of planetary survival. So I think we might be able to have a more robust language wherever we find places where people put some limitations, especially in a context where so much is at stake. This isn't just about wasting. It's about um, actual you know, survival of the species. Amazing, amazing. Thanks so much. Before I pass it over to my colleague, uh, Emma, to tell us about future Shemayim programs, I just want to thank Rabbi Arya Bernstein for this amazing session and for all of those here in the Zoom room and all of those listening from afar on other platforms. We're so happy you're learning with us. And we hope that this will not only push us to think about the potential moral imperatives of a vegan diet situated in an, not as a diet, but as an ethic of nonviolence and how this is situated in in an intersectional manner with other systems of violence in our society um, that we need to uh, be disruptive of. And, um, you know, but also that we continue to sensitize ourselves to the complicity in those industries as well as we seek to cultivate a more just and compassionate world. So thank you so much for uh, helping us to think about pain and, and uh, in relationship to human needs and beyond. Emma, over to you. Okay, yes, thank you so much, Arye. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us or is listening later. Um, I just wanna remind everyone that we're still recruiting for our Synagogue Vegan Challenge, as well as our campus fellows. So if you are interested, should look on our website and apply. And our next class will be December 14th. And we also have a panel that day as well. So lots coming up. And thank you all for being here. Bye. Thank you. Thank Take you. care, everybody. Pleasure to be thank with you. Thank you so much.